0: All right. Good morning, familia. Uh, My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors here, and I wanted to welcome you. Especially if you're visiting for the first time, Um, I just want you to know that it's such a pleasure and a blessing for us to have you here. I also want to greet those of you sitting in the east worship. Um, I I wanted you to know something: is I'm not gonna say this, but you might be some of my favorite people in the world. I'm not gonna say that because this group is gonna feel offended. It's just a joke. So I want to welcome you for being here with us. Could you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 13 to 16. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. If you are here with me, could you please say, I'm here. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore... In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you speak to us this morning. We are so grateful that we have access to your word and freedom of religion. We thank you, Lord, that we get to explore together the beautiful truths. Of scripture, Please speak to us this morning. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to be present, to illuminate our minds, to transform our hearts, to allow us to believe and to repent if it's necessary. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, Amen. you may take a seat. C.S. Lewis, in his book, *Mere Christianity, said this enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, meaning Jesus, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that we live in a land in which the devil is present and is active, And that Jesus came not just to destroy him, but destroy everything that he does. And that Christians, believers, are part of that. That's why we have called this series a spiritual war. um, Because we are all in the midst of this thing we call a spiritual war. Now Paul, the person that wrote this letter, in the text that we just read, not only wanted us to understand that this is a reality for all of us, But he also wanted to give us concepts or truths we must have in order to properly engage in this spiritual war. This section is known as the armor of God. And this armor of God, there are things believers, listen to this, already have in Jesus. Here we have a list of things, a list of parts of this armor that we all have, if you are a Christian, already in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying, he's calling us to do is to put on what we already have, to use what has already been given to us in Jesus Christ. Now the first two, last week we talked about the first two parts of the armor and we talked about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And today we're going to talk about two more. We're going to talk about, um, and I'm going to show you here, the gospel of peace and the shield of faith. And the way I'm going to deal with these two, these two concepts is actually under only one concept. We're going to talk about the concept of faith. So these are my two points for today. The object of faith and the peace of faith. For this one, I'm going to spend about 45 minutes. And on this one, another 45. <laughs> it's all right. I'm a Latino. So let's go with the first point, the object of faith. Here we have, uh, right, at the begin- right at the end of the section, which is read in vex- uh, verse 16, it says, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Now, as I'm studying this text more and more, I realize that every single truth we find in this text has kind of a double duty or double meaning. There's always an objective part to it, and there's always a subjective part to it. If you were here last week, I talked about this a little bit as well. The objective part of every single one of these parts of the armor is something that is unchangeable because it's something that God has already given us. Something that no one could take away. But the objective part of those things is, are the very things that change us and affect the way we live. So when we think of the concept of the shield of faith, which is the second one here, There's an objective part and a subjective part. Objectively, uh, the shield of faith means faith in God. Subjectively, this means faithfulness to God. The reason why I'm highlighting the first one is because this is where I'm going to spend most of my time. What does it mean to have faith in God? The reason why we must ask the question is because we all have an understanding of what faith is. Actually, I want to argue that everyone in this room knows what it means to live by faith. I want to argue that everyone in the world knows what it means to live by faith. This is my argument. We can have faith in ourselves. What I mean by that is that you could say, well, if I could do everything I set my mind into. It's a very humanistic approach. You know, if I have the right disciplines, I could conquer whatever I need to conquer. If I try harder, I could make it happen. That's having faith in ourselves. Some of the people may have faith in our destiny, meaning we know that everything at the end will be okay. Which is interesting because there's no foundation for that. Some other group of people will say, well, I don't have any of those, that kind of faith. I have faith in faith. What I mean by that is this group of people that will always tell you, don't stop believing. The question is, don't stop believing in what? One of the most popular ones, I think, in our society today is having faith in the power of teamwork. Together, we can change the world. You know what's interesting about that one? That is partly true. That if we as human beings come together in one mind, with one goal, we can change things. Do you know what the problem is? That it's really hard to get humans to stop being selfish and self-centered. That is the problem. Actually, last week, two weeks ago, I was watching the Golden Globes Awards. I don't know if you guys watch that stuff. and it's interesting because every single person that got an award, and I'm not exaggerating, every single person that got an award had some sort of faith message. Every single one of them says, well, we got to trust ourselves, and if we come together, we're going to be able to do this. But there was one lady in specific, and I'm not going to mention her name because I don't know it, but she um, she comes and receives the award, and then she says, We got to make a difference in this world. We got to change things. You got to vote for people that will change what's happening in our country. And I'm feeling inspired, people. And I'm getting teary and emotional as I hear this lady until she says at the end, Vote according to your self interest. And I'm like, Get? What just happened, Amiga? (laughs) Can, Can you see the problem with that? She's calling us to come together and change the world. He's calling us to vote for people that will make a difference in this country. But then she says, vote for the people that will serve you. Don't you find that ironic? That's not the role of the government to serve me? Can't you see the problem? The reason with every single kind of faith, outside of the Christian faith, if you will, is that the problem is humanity. How is humanity the solution? So the question remains... What's the difference between the Christian faith and any other faith? And here's the answer. That the object of our faith is only, completely, entirely, exclusively, and apologetically God. Only God is not god plus something else is not god in addition to something else is only god what i found though is having this conversation with different kind of people that even when we say yeah my faith is in god god is the object of my faith i don't think that sometimes we understand what that means i mean that might not be your case but just in case i would like to explain what is it according to scripture what it means to have God as the object of our faith. And I have three things. Faith requires that you believe in the existence of God. Faith requires that you trust the character of God. And faith requires that you understand the necessity of God. We must first believe that God exists. We must learn to trust his character. And we must recognize that we need him. If you get that, then you are a person of faith. Anything less than that is just religion. So, as a means of il- so to make my point clear, uh, uh, let me use this illustration. Um, so, I- I'm going to ask you to use your imagination for a second. All right? Um, let's think that you're just walking around and you fall into a hole. And you are in that hole, and you need someone to throw down a rope for you to rescue you. Now, in order for you to not lose hope in the midst of this difficult situation, you must believe. You must believe that there's got to be someone out there that wants to help you and can help you. In order for you to not lose your hope, you must believe that there's someone out there that is going to come to rescue you. How about if I tell you that that's not enough? It is not enough to claim that we believe in God just because he exists. That's not enough. That's why we need a second point. Not only we must believe that he exists, but we must trust his character. So imagine yourself in that hole. Imagine that you believe that there's someone out there that really cares, that wants to save you, right? Imagine that the person actually shows up, throws down the rope, and as he's pulling you up, you start wondering, is he going to hold me up? And you start wondering, is this person going to let me go? You start wondering that maybe right before you come out, the person says, just kidding, goes down. (laughs) See, what makes the difference between just having faith in God and trusting his character is that when we claim to believe that God is God, we are saying that he's trustworthy. Even if you don't see it, even if you cannot understand what's happening. That's faith. See, Spurgeon used to say that when you cannot see the hand of God, we can always trust his heart. That's what that meant. Trust his character. John Bloom, another writer, he says, when God seems silent, trust his promises more than your perceptions. That is to trust his character. See, to have God as the object of our faith is to believe that he exists. But it's also to trust. It is to trust his word. It is to trust his promises. It is to trust that he never changes. It is to trust that he is wisdom. It is to trust that he is powerful. He can do anything he wants whenever he wants it. He wants to do it. We got to trust that he's unstoppable. We got to trust that he's holy. He will never do anything wrong. We must trust that he is just. Meaning that he would always be fair. We must trust that he is good. He will never do anything evil. We must trust that he is truth. He will never lie. He is, he, we must trust that he is gracious, that he is compassionate, and that he is love. We must trust that everything he does is for his glory and, believe it or not, your joy. You must trust that he's omniscient. He knows everything there is to know. Nothing is a surprise to him. Did you know that? Nothing catches God God off guard. To to believe in God and to have God as the object of our faith is for us to trust that he's sovereign. Sovereign, that everything goes according to his plans. So there's got to be at least one person in this room asking the questions, what guarantees that that is true? And this is where the gospel comes in. Because if you really wonder if God is powerful, all you have to do is look at Jesus and what happened at the cross. Is God enough to die and resurrect? Yes, he is. Do you wonder if God is good? Look at what Jesus was willing to do when he went to the cross. Do you wonder if God is gracious and compassionate and love? Look at what Jesus was willing to go through because of you. Do you wonder if God is in control and that everything goes according to his plans? Look at Jesus dying and resurrecting and declaring it is finished. See, to have God as the object of our faith requires that not only we believe that he exists, but that we believe and trust his character. Now, let me go back to the illustration because I want to argue that that is not enough what good is it if you are in that hall, and don't, and someone comes and throws the rope down, and you trust that person, but you never get a hold of that rope? Is that faith? No, it's not. It's just information. Faith is the instrument God gives us as a gift so we hold on to him. That we trust everything we are in Jesus, and that everything, and we trust everything we have in Jesus. Now, because we're talking about spiritual war, you've got to ask the question, what does the devil do to try to shake our faith? What is it that he does to try to shake your faith? If you claim that God is the object of your faith. But it's interesting. The more I meditate on this, the more I realize that God, that the devil never, he will will never call you to stop believing in God. He would do that with atheist people. But with Christians, his approach is different, you know. His approach is not you should stop believing in God. His approach is never that. His approach is always different. His approach to you is more like asking you the question, is God really enough for you? That's the temptation. Is God really enough in the midst of your troubles? And the second temptation, I believe, is that he starts messing around with your emotions. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because I believe that that's what Paul has in mind in this text. So, in verse 16, for example, he calls us, um, ay, 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 let me go back here. He calls us to take the shield and he talks about flaming arrows. Now, those two words are significant and important here because whenever you think of the word shield, First of all, in the Old Testament, it always has to do with God being a protector, God being the defender, and God being a, a, a refuge all the time. But when you think of a shield in past times, you're not, you cannot think of this tiny little thing that Roman soldiers had to protect themselves. Actually, the description will be, will be more like, um, like something that is extremely big, maybe the size of a door, that will protect your entire body and will protect your entire body when you are the most vulnerable. Now, check this out. This shield would only be used when you were approaching the city wall, in which the enemies will attack you from above using flaming arrows. Now, the flaming arrows here are significant as well because they have two purposes. There's a main purpose and a secondary purpose. The main purpose of the flaming arrow was obviously to kill the enemy by burning them alive. But the secondary purpose was to create or cause an emotional panic to everybody else that was watching. This is interesting. Most scholars would argue that those flaming arrows to all their enemies, feel the burn of worry and distress. You know why? Because there's nothing worse than you seeing somebody else being burned alive and you thinking, is that going to be me next? It's super interesting what's happening here with Paul. It's super interesting what Paul is trying to teach us here. In the midst of all this trouble, in the midst of war, in the midst of all this, Paul wants us to understand that the devil would always tempt us the same way. He would always have you question if God is enough. And he would always mess around with your emotions. Listen, we are all emotional people. There's nothing wrong with emotions. I like emotions. I hope you could tell. And there are good emotions and there are emotions that are not as good. Emotions help you embrace life and enjoy life. But emotions could be deceitful. This is the problem. The devil may use your emotions to help you think or to make you think that your feelings dictate reality. You know, I think that this is a season and a culture and a time in which that is the popular thought. You are what you feel. You are what you think you are. You are what your emotions tell you you are. You know, the irony of that is that we don't apply that principle to anything else, you know? We wouldn't apply that principle to a criminal, for example. It doesn't matter if a a criminal comes to you and says, you know what, I feel that I got to kill you. You would not be okay with that. You would not be okay with a parent saying to you, you know, I feel that I have stopped feeding my kids. You wouldn't be okay with that. Because emotions never, ever, ever dictate reality. Emotions are never a safe indicative of reality. And I believe that that's what Paul is trying to say here. To have faith in God is to understand that he exists, to trust his character, to cling to him because the devil is present and he uses our emotions to lie. Now, I told you that the shield of faith has an objective meaning, which means to have faith in God. And it has a subjective meaning, which is the faithfulness, is to be faithful to God. And the reason why I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one is because I truly believe that what the Bible teaches you is this. The more this is true for you, faith in God, the more faithful you're going to be. The more you believe in the objectivity of who God is the more faithful you are going to be. You are not faithful so you could trust more. It is because you trust more that you are faithful. Do you have that? Do you believe that? Now let's go to the second point. Let's talk about the peace of faith. This one, that when we talk about the peace of faith, is extremely important, because I actually think that this is something that we, every single one of us is struggle with here. This comes in verse 15, and he says, "And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace." Now just as with the subject before, there's also an objective part to this and a subjective part to this. The objective part of this says that uh, the peace of God is talking about peace with God. The subjective part of this is saying is talking about the proclamation of the gospel. And what I want to argue is that you become a person that wants to proclaim the gospel only if you already have peace with God. Once again, every single one of those things are, is talking about the things that we already have in Jesus before God. When the Bible talks about the peace with God, it's talking about that which Jesus won for us, that which Jesus purchased for us when he went to the cross, that which Jesus absorbed for us when he went to the cross. It is because Jesus goes to the cross and he absorbs the wrath of God that we have peace with God. Interesting that this thing can only come to you by faith. That's why I put it in this order. The only thing that is required of you to have peace with God is to repent and to believe. And if this is true, there's a couple of truths that you got to keep in mind. Number one, there's nothing else you can do for God to have peace with you. uh, For you to have peace with God. Only believe and repent. That's the only thing the Bible requires. Number two, if that is true then God is really not angry with you. He's not. Even when you sin. And number three, God truly delights in you. Even when you have sinned. Now, I think that this concept, this doctrine, this belief is the only way, the only thing we have to deal with our guilt and our shame. That is the only way. See, guilt and shame are like twin brothers. And they're inseparable. But they're different. Guilt and shame first come to creation when Adam and Eve sin. And from that point on, we are all affected by that. Guilt... Is usually tied up to an event, something that I have done wrong. Guilt is like a wound, something I carry with me. Guilt is that thing that nobody else can see, but I could feel. Guilt is that thing that only affects me. But shame is tied to a person, it's something I think I am. It's like a scar. It's like a scar that I'm trying really hard to cover up. It's like me trying to hide. And it never works. It doesn't matter how much you try, it never works. Guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says that's why you need to hide. You are no good. You deserve to live in darkness. Come with me. I'll lead the way. In my time as a pastor, I've learned that guilt and shame is the number one thing Christians struggle with. So I'm writing this and I'm thinking, how many of us here this morning are living this way? How many of us this morning are caring with guilt? How many of us still listen to the voice of the devil saying, "Time after time, remember what you have done wrong? How many of us here this morning cannot let go of something that you did? How many of us this morning are trying to cover our shame either by good works or by being more spiritual or by achieving things or by acting differently? How many of us are acting to cover our, uh, trying to cover our shame by portraying an image that is not you? And Paul says here that none of that stuff is going to work. That the only way that you can get rid of your guilt and your shame is not, is not by doing something different. And it's not by doing more. That the only way that you can get, of your guilt, get rid of your guilt and your shame is by repenting and believing that in Jesus there is peace with God, and that that peace is unshakable. So, Steve Brown, which is a Bible teacher for many years, a Presbyterian Bible teacher, he uses this illustration that every time I've heard it, it really touches my heart. He says that we are like a little kid that is walking around with this bag full of rocks. And they're so heavy that you struggle even walking. But then he imagines Jesus coming to the kid and saying something like, "Can I help you?" And he imagines the kid saying, "Well, I'm, yeah, for sure, can you take this and throw it away?" But what he says is that instead of doing that, what Jesus does is that he takes the bag and carries it in himself. You know, that is the gospel. It's not Jesus getting rid of your guilt and your shame. Just that. It's about him going to the cross to carry your guilt and your shame. And this is why Paul uses the metaphor of shoes here in verse 15. It calls us to feed our feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Notice here that this is that comes from the gospel of peace. And this is also important here because when you think of a shoes, if I I use an illustration in modern terms, you got to think of um, football or soccer cleats. You know, these shoes always got to be or they had to be um, light so you could move fast. And they had to be strong so they could protect you. But they had to have something at the bottom so you would not, so you would have traction and you would not slip. And the word readiness here is just as important because it's a word that appears only one time in the New Testament, 12 times in the Old Testament. And every time it appears in the Old Testament, it means the same thing. To stand in solid ground. So if you put these two concepts together, this is what Paul is saying. That for Christians, the gospel of peace is this thing that you ought to wear to be able to run, to be able to feel protected, so you don't sleep, because we live in the midst of a spiritual war, in which the devil is lying and he's also accusing you. Every time he tells you the same thing, do you remember what you did? Guilt, that's why you are. Shame. Isn't that true for you? That's true for me. It is true for me. I could almost hear the devil telling Jesus, did you see what Hannibal did? But at the same time, I could almost hear the Holy Spirit saying what Jesus would say. I already died for that sin. I could hear almost the devil saying, can you see what, that, what, that, what Peter the coward did? But at the same time, I could ju- hear, almost hear Jesus saying, yes, but I died for that sin. I could hear the devil telling Jesus, do you see what Mary, can you see Mary and how much she lied? But at the same time, I could hear Jesus saying, yes, but I already died for that sin. I could hear the devil saying to Jesus, do, can you see how that woman, can you, do you see what that woman did with her body? But at the same time, I could hear Jesus saying, yes, but I already died for that sin. I could hear the devil saying to Jesus, how are you going to forgive that criminal? And at the same time, I could hear Jesus saying, yes, but I died for that sin. This is part of the reason why we have the image of Jesus Jesus standing on the right hand of God, you know? And that he's interceding for us. I think that there's there's a misunderstanding when we think that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, begging for forgiveness. Oh, look at what Hannibal did. Please forgive him again. Oh, look at what Hannibal did. Please forgive him again. That's not what the Bible talks about. What the Bible talks about is that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, reminding, quote, unquote, God saying, everything Hannibal has done, everything Hannibal is doing, and everything that Hannibal will do had been forgiven. My body was already surrendered. My blood was already shed. My payment was already enough. That is the only way that I get rid of my guilt That is the only way you get rid of your shame. Yeah, you could praise God. Do you have that? See, today you could be free again. Or today you could be free for the first time. All you have to do is repent and believe. That is the subjective part of the gospel of peace. It means to have peace with God. But the subjective part of this is the proclamation of the gospel. And this is part of the reason why the Lord called us to proclaim the gospel. But as I'm thinking this, why would God put these things like this? So this is my simple explanation. You only proclaim that which is true for you. You guys, you guys have any idea why is it that you brag about the things that you buy? Because you like it and you enjoy it. So for men tell me, listen, I cannot worship because I'm not an emotional person. I would always argue I've seen you watching a football game. Because you brag and you complain about the things that are true for you. So, for me, it's this the more I understand that I have peace with God in Jesus, the more I understand that I'm free from fear, that I'm free from guilt, that I'm free from shame, the more I want to proclaim what I already have. You know, Martin Lloyd Jones was a British pastor. Someone asked him once, and he says, why is it? He was a doctor before that, uh, before becoming a pastor and a preacher. And someone asked him, why is it that you became a pastor and a preacher? Listen, this is what he said. All I know is that I had this message that transformed my life. Therefore, I had to share it. We are hungry people telling Hungry people were to get food. That's all. No marketing, no tricks, no pretending, just you sharing with others what you already have in Jesus. Do you have that? If not, today is the day. Repent. And believe, even if you're a Christian, do it again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these two beautiful truths, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, we have the gospel of peace and we have the shield of faith. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, meditate on this, you make this true to us. I pray, Lord, that you give us the gift of repentance. And I pray, Lord, that you give us the gift to believe. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to see that it is possible in the midst of a complicated life to believe that you are enough. That you protect, that you defend, that we're never alone. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to believe that it is possible to live a life in which guilt and shame cannot control us. Please reveal that to us. Please help us believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say